Well, as we continue our uh, journey through Yom Kippur and through these holidays, so uh, last night we, uh, we talked uh, about Yom Kippur, what it is. We talked about uh, the, uh, uh, what reconciliation is. We talked about the offerings, what the Day of Atonement means, what atonement means, what, uh, the, the promise of an everlasting atonement. We talked about the, uh, uh, in the Brit Hadashah, uh, how Yeshua is uh, all of the constellation of words of what Kippur is, uh, Yeshua fulfills. And, uh, and, and so we had a very good uh, understanding of that. We saw how Yeshua is the mercy seat, the place of atonement uh, that uh, abates the wrath of God, uh, the propitiation. We, we looked at that big word uh, there last night and and, uh, and hopefully, uh, uh, we appreciate all the more that Yeshua is indeed our atonement, and in Him we have confidence uh, to enter uh, the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, through a new and living way. Uh, we have confidence to know that our sins are indeed uh, uh, not only forgiven, but wiped away, right? And, uh, and as we saw this morning, the result is reconciliation. So on Rosh Hashanah, we're called to return, to come back. Uh, but the wonderful thing is, is that we have this assurance of that God receives us and that we're reconciled. Of course, in the New Covenant, that's pictured perfectly by the parable, the story of the prodigal son, you know, uh, and uh, as well as the lost coin uh, and the lost sheep in the very same chapter there in Luke chapter 15. And uh, as I, uh, I think I said it, uh, or at least when, when we prayed at the beginning of the service, uh, what a blessing it is to know that we don't have to apply to return to God, you know, that maybe we'll get rejected. Uh, I remember, you know, I applied to a particular college that I really wanted to go to very, very badly uh, that I did not get into. Uh, which turned out to be, in the providence of God, uh, uh, the, the right thing for many different reasons. Uh, but you know how that is. Perhaps you've applied for a job or applied to go to a school or applied for something and you're, you're waiting. Maybe I'll get in. Maybe they'll take me. Maybe they won't take me. And, you know. But isn't it a marvelous thing here that we don't apply? We just return and we're reconciled uh, uh, to God. So this morning, we want to talk about a little bit of what are some of the fruits of that. How do we demonstrate reconciliation, right? Uh, and, uh, and we begin by explaining, uh, therefore, why we, why we need it. We talked about it last night, but a little bit today from a little bit of a, of a different angle. Why we need uh, this uh, reconciliation. Well, from the point of view of the Scriptures, God created us to live a certain way, right? We created us in his image and in his likeness, and we read in the early chapters of Genesis about the, you know, the, the Garden of Eden uh, and how marvelous it was. And, and actually, uh, you can look on our website, and if you go back to the beginning of the series on Genesis, way back to the beginning of the series on Genesis, and you look at the first, th first few installments, we talk all, all about that. Now, 
We know that uh, in the Garden of Eden, God created mankind to reflect the character and the nature of God, and He gave uh, mankind a fruitful, satisfying life. And we know the story, right? Uh, As a result of the disobedience of uh, humanity, of Adam and Eve, uh, a distortion began to occur in the relationship of people toward God, toward other people, and the world, right? Right? Uh, mankind we see is alienated from God. That's depicted of having to leave the garden, right? And cover themselves and all of that. And then difficulty among people. Uh, we read about, uh, you know, the uh, children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Uh, and uh, certainly we read alienation in their relationship. There was murder, fratricide, one brother killing another. And then also an alienation from the world, from the earth itself. And what was supposed to be a blessing becomes very difficult. The blessings, all the blessings that God gave to mankind become difficult. Even childbearing, this great blessing of fruitfulness, becomes difficult. Tilling the soil becomes difficult. Relating to God becomes difficult. Relating to other people becomes difficult. Think of the early stories in the Bible. Lots of family problems. Lots of difficulty with the environment, like a huge flood, by the way, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and also rebellion and relating uh, 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 to, to God. We see that throughout the beginning of the, uh, the, beginning of the Scriptures which uh, explains to us when God calls Abraham, it's about reconciliation. It's for the purpose of reconciliation. God called Israel to be the, um, the method through Israel, the method of reconciliation uh, of, uh, indeed, the, the world. And uh, uh, we know that our world today experiences this alienation. It's why the way the world is. And you read, there's a, a famous passage in the New Covenant in 1 John uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Um, Do not love the world. The world there represents the way of life, the way of thinking, the way of the world in alienation to God, others, and self. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here you go, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides, uh, abides forever." And so this is the state of, uh, of alienation. So in this state, uh, it creates certain attitudes and, and feelings uh, that we may be familiar with. It creates loneliness and meaninglessness, uh, randomness. Uh, a sense, you know, why, why, uh, why am I here? What is my, uh, what is my purpose? Uh, and, and a host of uh, attitudes and feelings that uh, in our modern world, we would say, uh, uh, create uh, problems for us, internal issues. Uh, and we have difficult times uh, relating to others, and we act out in certain ways. 
All of this has to do with alienation. Alienation from God, which then causes us to be alienated from others, from ourselves, uh, and uh, from the world uh, at, at large. In a way, it's depicted in the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Under the sun. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a very interesting book. Uh, under the sun represents what he see in this world. In this world, if you just look at it without, uh, uh, you know, without uh, being connected to God, there is a sense of alienation, even if people are living in denial, right? Living in denial. And when we live in denial, we create ways to be fulfilled. I'm fulfilled in my job, I'm fulfilled in my uh, I'm fulfilled in my family, I'm, and we, you know, we find varieties of ways to be satisfied. Yet we are still alienated from God. Yet that yearning is somewhere in there. Now uh, I've mentioned this name before, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, you have heard of this person, Francis Schaeffer. Anybody ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Real big in the 1970s, real, really big. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, I, I, he, I, he's a very interesting person. He was, uh, he was a pastor in St. Louis, and uh, he was hired by Wheaton College in 1968 to teach there. And what he began to do was uh, uh, explain through modern art, modern music, uh, through uh, theater and movies, uh, uh, the observation of alienation. What was very interesting about him at that time is, and it's kind of interesting when I think about it now, that the students at Wheaton College in 1968 couldn't go to movies uh, and didn't listen to modern music. <laughs> and so what Francis Schaeffer did was really open up the door to pay attention, like to pay attention to the culture, you know, uh, and, uh, and this was, you know, for a lot of people my age and, and coming to know Messiah uh, during that period of time, this was very, very important to observe and to see. And what he did is he has this famous, maybe you can actually Google it, Google line of despair, and you'll get all kinds of stuff on this. So uh, he had this little visual, and it was a line. Above the line, he called the line the line of despair. Above the line was faith. Above the line is trust, hope, uh, you know, everything, all of what we know to be true of the Lord, uh, meaningfulness, satisfaction, joy, peace, all that. Below it were, well, were a, different, uh, a number of different categories, arts, um, music, uh, uh, culture in general, philosophy, and, and, and a number of different categories. Uh, and he would write about how you can see the alienation in the culture of being apart from God and how it's pointed out in, in music and in art and philosophy and other ways. Uh, and, uh, and, and so this was very helpful to see the, this line of despair and how the world is in, uh, is in despair. And so he wrote a number of books. Uh, one is called The God Who Is There, right? Uh, and then a, a number of others. 
Uh, and, uh, and so that is a great book. And, uh, and so just remember this, that Schaefer is the one book to have if you're having more than one. Okay, I just thought I'd say that. Some of you, if you're from New York, you know what I'm talking about there. Okay, so Francis Schaeffer, great. Uh, you know, he speaks into our world, our world uh, uh, today. And the world is indeed alienated from God. And we see it in a number of places. One place is in the book of Isaiah in the 59th chapter. Isaiah 59. You know, when you look around the world and you say, why do people act out the way they do? alienated from God. Why do, uh, why do people relate or not relate very well to people? Why do we see so many disturbed people in situations? People are alienated. People need the Lord. People need to be connected. And you know, I'll just say this uh, as you're turning there to Isaiah 59. You know, uh, when, uh, when I teach at MSI on uh, wisdom literature, wisdom literature in the Bible, like a number of Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, Job, a few others. I, what, is, uh, what is very important to understand is, is that when you read a book like Proverbs, that is wisdom as it's supposed to be, when things are in order. God created us to live in order, in an orderly, in an orderly world, in that we relate to others, you know, in an orderly, healthy way. We relate to the world. We relate to ourselves. We know who we are, you know. Uh, we relate to God in an orderly way. And so, when you read Proverbs, uh, it's really this is like a vision, like a vision statement for an orderly world. And hopefully, in Messiah the way we relate to one another, we relate to ourselves, the book of Proverbs then is, is reflective of this orderly world. But we know that the world is not orderly. We know that the world is in darkness. And so hence you have the book of Job and Ecclesiastes, which uh, is wisdom in a disorderly world, you see? Uh, very important uh, to understand. By the way, uh, I'm teaching a class on uh, Habakkuk, which also is, he's not only a prophet, but very much falls into the genre of wisdom, wisdom literature, uh, wisdom in a disorderly world. We see how he negotiates all of that. Uh, and so here in Isaiah 59, we read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Okay? Now, when you, when you see this, uh, that could be really debilitating. Uh, many years ago, a leader of a major denomination took this verse and uh, took it to a place it should have never gone. I don't know if you remember that. Um, uh, as if to say, God doesn't hear the prayer. God does not hear prayer, you know, unless uh, you are redeemed. That is not what this means. It means that God is hidden. Uh, it means here, when, he's, when it says here, God does not hear, God is, God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah that we are separated from God because of our sins. Therefore, we are alienated 
uh, uh, from God, and we do not have that intimacy with God. So we don't have the same uh, uh, kind of, we would not have the same kind of prayer life uh, uh, or intimacy with God. Now look what it says in verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Just look outside and read this and say, yeah, right. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. You know, there is a passage in Isaiah that says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That is the world in which we live. It was also the world of 2,800 years ago. But it is the world in which we live. That is what happens when we're alienated from God. Okay? They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs die. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs, are not being, are not be, their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. And an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads upon them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. I mean, I could go on and on, but the point of it, this is a description. You can read the, uh, the next eight or nine verses in Isaiah 59, and it is a description of alienation. Okay? It's not just that some people are bad or this, you know, some people had a bad uh, upbringing. It all goes back to this issue of not being connected to the source of not being connected to the Creator, to the one who made us to live and act uh, and, and experience life in a certain way. When we're disconnected, everything gets twisted. And that's what you see at the beginning of Genesis, and that's what you see indeed, uh, indeed today. So that is why reconciliation is so powerful and so important not only for our own selves and our personal destiny, but for the future of our world. Being reconciled to God is what the good news is all about. And so, like we saw last night, we have a promise of, uh, of uh, restoration, of uh, reconciliation. And in Yeshua, we have the fulfillment of uh, reconciliation. And as Jim and Lola read this morning... Uh, in the Brit Hadashah portion, uh, Paul identified his ministry as one of reconciliation, ambassadors of reconciliation, ministry of reconciliation. Uh, and, uh, and that is certainly a very good way for us to see our own world and our own selves in it. In the New Covenant, there's a few passages that, that describe this issue of alienation and the, and the remedy. One of those passages is one in which uh, uh, Paul is talking to people who were formerly pagan, uh, but now have become Messiah followers. 
And he talks about how they were alienated. But I will suggest that on a practical level, every single human being is in this condition. Uh, even if we are uh, uh, in the covenant of Abraham, uh, you know, being Jewish or, or whatever. Uh, but in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, in the second chapter, that practically speaking, this is the condition of mankind. In verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time, and this is before knowing the Messiah, right? Separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a great phrase. Now, I know, of course, uh, that uh, Israel uh, is uh, obviously part of the commonwealth uh, of Israel and have the covenants of promise. But I will say that on a practical level, when we deny God, when we walk away from God, when we live apart from the covenant, it's as if we're, all, we're pagan. And in our world today, we have to recognize that that uh, we all uh, are separated from God, whether we're Jewish or Gentile. In Isaiah 59, he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the people of the covenant when he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and he, did, and he does not hear. So it is really the state of affairs of our world, this issue of no hope and without God, uh, and without God in the world. It's not as if God is ignoring everybody. It's that people are ignoring him. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, but now in Messiah Yeshua, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. The, the point is, uh, I'm not talking about the unity of Jew and Gentile today. I'm talking about the fact that in Messiah is the reconciliation, the antidote to alienation. And I will say this, though, regarding the relationship of Jew and Gentile in this passage, that the result of reconciliation with God is reconciliation with others. That when we are reconciled to God, it does not matter what our ethnic, uh, uh, what our ethnicity is. It does not matter where we come from or our economic status or what part of town we live in or anything, right? We are indeed one in uh, Messiah. And of course, part of our testimony is to maintain those ethnic that ethnic diversity so that the world can see unity of different peoples. That's what happens when we're reconciled to God. And that's what we want to see today is, is what are some of the benefits of this uh, reconciliation. Okay, now, in, uh, since we're in Ephesians... Uh, in the um, in the fourth uh, in the fourth chapter, you read in verses seventeen to nineteen. He he makes another statement. It's kind of like the statement in chapter two about where where you were and where you are now. But he says it a little a little differently. In verse seventeen, he says, "This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk, pagans." walk in the futility of their mind, the meaninglessness of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, 
because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you do not learn Messiah in this way. And if you jump down, uh, he says in verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted uh, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. which is in the likeness of God. When we are reconciled to God, we begin to manifest the ethics and morals of God. Okay? Uh, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has become created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you to his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you. On your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity. Steal no longer. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Messiah has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what happens when, uh, when we are... Uh, reconciled uh, when we are reconciled uh, to God. When we are not reconciled to God, you know, we may uh, experience guilt. We may experience uh, the, the, the pain of alienation. And just remember this today, especially on Yom Kippur, that pain is a good thing, right? If you didn't experience pain, you would die at some point, right? You would not know that something's wrong. Same thing with guilt. Perhaps even as believers, we need to be reminded that we are reconciled to God. And if we are experiencing guilt of, wow, I'm really not living the way I should, well then, Lord willing, we're driven to return and receive again reconciliation in in the sense of cleansing and and forgiveness uh, when we uh, uh, confess our sins. So we see that uh, we live a life that demonstrates, the re- we're supposed to anyway, live a life that demonstrates the reconciliation of God. And when we have an attitude of reconciliation, that uh, we have the opportunity to make a real difference in this world uh, for the world to see what it means indeed uh, to be uh, reconciled to God. And in doing so, we can make a difference in the lives uh, of, uh, of other, other uh, people. Well, certainly, when you think about reconciliation, the first thing you think about is forgiveness. That's why forgiveness is mentioned uh, everywhere uh, in the uh, New Covenant as, as uh, you know, forgive one another, forgive 70 times 7, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so we can say a word about that, this issue of uh, forgiveness. When we have an attitude of reconciliation, uh, uh, and, and we uh, live that way. We are really demonstrating the love of God for others, even when it is not reciprocated. Okay? It's important to understand that God has provided atonement for the whole world. He's provided atonement for the whole world. The scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.6 that in Yeshua, he is a ransom for all. For all. Okay? Yeshua did not die only for the sins of the people that embrace him. 
He died for the sins of mankind. And so, if that's the case, God has actually provided reconciliation for the whole world. He's provided forgiveness for the whole world. He's provided forgiveness for the vilest sinner. What's the problem? The problem is people don't receive it. People don't accept it. It is not true that God is withholding forgiveness from people. That is not a correct statement. That is not, that is not right. God is not withholding anything. People don't receive it. Look at the Gospel of John. Now, the reason I'm making this point is because this plays a very important role in our relationship with other people. Anyway, in John chapter 1, in verses 11 and 12, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. If you believe in His name, you can appropriate reconciliation, being becoming a child of God. But He came for everybody. He provided a ransom for all. God desires that none would perish. You see? Uh, and, uh, and so that is very, very uh, important to us. Uh, the reason being is that if, therefore, uh, in our reconciliation with God, and we demonstrate uh, the forgiveness, forgive people just as God forgave us, we need to forgive whoever is out there. Now, it's, quote-unquote, their problem if they don't acknowledge it or, you know, receive you and there's no reconciliation. There's no reconciliation with God for lots of people in this world. And so in the same way, there is not always going to be reconciliation between, you know, horizontally between people. What do you do? Well, what do you do? You give that debt to God and God will indeed deal with that person. Because God is really the one who forgives. And you know, there is a great story in the Bible that depicts this very truth. And uh, if I had thought about this a little more, I could have finished up Genesis today. But anyway, it's this, in the story of Joseph. But at the very end, jo Joseph says something very interesting. And I think it serves as a very good model for us as being people of reconciliation. In uh, Genesis chapter 50, okay, when I, uh, Jacob dies, this is the very end, it's the very end. When Jacob dies, right, the brothers are, are afraid again. That now that dad's dead, now Joseph's going to really go after us, right? So they tell Joseph that our father said, uh, you know, uh, his heart's desire is that you would forgive us, right? So notice what happens here. In verse 17 of Genesis chapter 50, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So now Joseph's he says something really interesting here. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? In other words, you know, the issue of forgiveness 
uh, frankly, is between you and God. I'm not God. But you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And so you could say that, in essence, Joseph is forgiving them. He is letting them off the hook. He is not demanding anything from them. He says, I'm not in God's place, right? So we could say he gives this debt to God. But from his vantage point, he is not holding a root of bitterness. He is not holding a grudge. He is not living in a prison. He is indeed free because he sees everything that happens in his life as somehow connected uh, uh, to God. And he is demonstrating what it means to be reconciled to God. That God controls my life. That God is in every aspect, nook and cranny of my life. And so he says, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, even after all that had happened, right? Uh, and so I think that is uh, very interesting. Just that phrase, am I in God's place? And I think that's, that's an important uh, you know, aspect to have. We are not in God's place. Okay, now, but then on the other hand, what the scripture focuses on uh, a lot is when we're guilty, right? When we're guilty, as reconciled people, hopefully, uh, we do not want to be unreconciled with others, you know? Uh, and, uh, and I would say, uh, just going back to this other point very quickly, I can say, uh, uh, for me personally, yes, uh, there are some situations that are not reconciled. But as, as much as it depends on me, there is peace as far as it depends on me, as far as it depends on my attitude, as far as it depends on my relationship with God and my attitude toward others. Absolutely. Okay? But it's for them to deal uh, with the debt. See? Now, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're familiar with uh, this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. That before we come and we present an offering, if somebody has something against us, we need to go and ask their forgiveness. And isn't that what these 10 days of awe are about? We need to ask their forgiveness and be reconciled before we bring the offering. Be reconciled before we bring the offering. Right? Uh, and so it says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember there's a brother has something against you. This is in verse 23 and now following. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison because you're guilty. <laughs> See? Uh, and, uh, and so this is talking about a situation where, which would be, uh, you know, uh, among the Messiah followers, where hopefully in our community, hopefully there is no enmity, hopefully uh, there is no uh, holding grudges or roots of bitterness, uh, and that we reconcile quickly and we demonstrate that. We demonstrate it in our personal relationships, and hopefully we demonstrate it socially as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. We demonstrated socially in our relationships with social groups. We demonstrated personally in our relationship with our neighbors, in our relationship with other people. And as much as it depends on us, 
we are forgivers because we are reconciled to God. We know who we are. Our identity is in the Lord. When we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to ourselves. We know who we are. We can forgive. We can pray for people. And sometimes, you know, it takes time and for healing to take place uh, in those things. But quite clearly, uh, forgiveness is major, right? But there's other, uh, other uh, ways of demonstrating uh, reconciliation. Treating people in an edifying manner, just treating people well. Notice the type of attributes that we read about in the fruit of the Spirit, uh, in uh, the book of uh, Galatians, okay? In Galatians 5, in verse um, um, 22, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against things like these, there is no law, right? The reason this is called the fruit of the Spirit is because it is indeed the, uh, the ethics and morals of God. When we live out this way, we are living lives of reconciliation. We're edifying people. Uh, we are speaking well into people's lives. Notice the deeds of the flesh above it. Uh, you have here immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. These are all demonstrations of what it means to be alienated and brings alienation and problems. The fruit of the Spirit is the opposite of alienation. It is unity. It is brotherhood. It, it is fellowship. It is relationship building. It demonstrates how God uh, interacts with us and how we are called, indeed, to interact with others. You know, there are, um, uh, there are many places in the New Covenant that talk about how we should treat one another. We read about admonishing one another. We, we, we read about loving one another. We read we're members of one another. Being in relationship in an edifying way. Sometimes, sometimes you have to tell the truth in love. It can be difficult. But always in love for the purpose of building up, for the purpose of growing us up in the body of Messiah. That's what it means to live in a reconciled way. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, let peace rule. And you know, the word rule is a word that would be something similar to like an umpire. Like, make, let peace be the determination, be the determining factor in the choices you make. You know, is it a strike or is it a ball? <laughs> are you safe or are you out? Let peace rule, right? Uh, let the peace of Messiah rule our hearts. Are the decisions I make, do they bring peace between me and God? Do they build the fellowship that I have with God? Or is it offensive to God? I, am I uh, alienating people or am I building up people? Let peace rule in your heart. In Philippians chapter 2, we read there, um, uh, you know, other uh, uh, great uh, descriptions of what it means to be uh, living in a reconciled manner. If therefore there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. And then there's a description of this attitude in Messiah Yeshua, a great passage. That, that, that those are demonstrations of a reconciliation. But then there is a reconciliation that, uh, that uh, brings us to a place that we might not always be comfortable in or even recognize. It's in our Haftorah portion for today in Isaiah chapter uh, 58. It's about the fast and how do we fast, right? Cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you don't hear us? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. In other words, uh, you're fasting uh, yeah, on one hand, uh, you're doing this religious activity, but you're not acting in a way that is ethical and moral toward here, toward the people that work for you. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike a deal with wicked fists. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. In other words, they're fasting to try to get God to do something, you know, rather than coming in humility, in humility, of, uh, you know, and uh, uh, looking for the grace of God and for, uh, and for forgiveness. Sometimes we fast, we're just going through the motions because we know that's what we're supposed to do. And sometimes we fast and, and uh, we, do not, um, uh, we do not see fruit because we're trying to, like, pay God. We're trying to, God, if I fast, you'll do this then, right? That's, is that kind of like the negotiation? Can I get you to do this if I fast? That is not, certainly on Yom Kippur, what fasting is about. It is coming with contrition and a broken heart to God and demonstrating our, our helplessness without God. Uh, that is how we are to fast. But notice what he's going to go on to say. Why have you fasted? Why have we fasted and you don't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire, you drive your... Yeah. Oh, okay, let's go down to verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day uh, to humble yourself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth as an ashes on a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day of the Lord? This is not the fast that I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked and cover him and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? This is what God is saying. He's saying, I want you to fast, okay? I want you to come humbly to me, but recognize that if you really belong to me and you are reconciled to me, there are, there's a way of life that you're going to live that you relate to the people in this world in a certain way. And that is to relieve oppression, uh, to free slaves, to confront true injustice in our world. 
That is indeed part of what we might call a ministry of reconciliation. The difference is, it's not just for the purpose of making the world a better place. It's for the purpose of, de- of, of demonstrating the glory of God. And this is what reconciliation does. These are our motives uh, to bring the reconciliation of God to this world. But it has to be demonstrated in real life, uh, real life activities. Real life activities. We don't have time, but you can look on your own. In Leviticus chapter 19, that's where it says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then it describes holiness. And how does it describe holiness? Be kind to vulnerable people. You know, don't put put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. That's being holy. Uh, Be kind to widows and orphans. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus uh, 19, 18. That's being holy. That is the ministry of reconciliation, okay? So it is, yes, preaching the gospel, but demonstrating the gospel in the way that we live in word and deed. And, you know, hopefully for us, uh, this might be a year of uh, being committed to the Lord in a new way. Uh, We had our friends from Urban Connections here. Maybe uh, more of us might get involved in something like that. Uh, you know, we uh, hear, um, uh, you know, Dan and Lauren are um, leading the way when it comes to prison ministry, and I know some of you are involved in that kind of thing. Uh, also in human trafficking, some of you are involved in that, and others. These are very important demonstrations of what it means to be committed to the Lord, of uh, demonstrating uh, the life of Yeshua. Uh, demonstrating what it means to be reconciled to God, treating people with dignity, uh, treating people in a way that uh, brings them to faith in the Messiah uh, and causes spiritual growth. May we have that in our community here, and, and may we make a difference in reconciling this world to God. And that is indeed what uh, Yom Kippur is uh, about. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for uh, the reconciliation that we have in Messiah Yeshua. Thank you, Lord, uh, God, that you have allowed us, God, to know you, to be reconciled, to be made whole, to be healed. Lord, I pray, God, that we would stretch out our hands and our, and our legs and, and bring reconciliation to others uh, in this world, God, through word and deed to know, God, that there is real forgiveness in you. And we demonstrate that in, in how we treat people and, and how we help people. God, we pray that uh, our presentation of the good news would not just be handing people a doctrinal statement and saying, agree with this, but that it might be real uh, in people's lives. Lord, we pray, God, that today you, you would convict us of this and that we might we might confess to you our negligence in living out this life of reconciliation. Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would cleanse us, make us holy, Lord. We pray, God, that we would be holy and set apart for you, ready indeed to do your will. We pray in Messiah's name.